KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. It seems more and more as we hear about tragedies like mass shootings, we hear the term online radicalization attached to the person behind the atrocity. So how does someone get radicalized online? And even if someone doesn't do something awful, the radicalization can destroy relationships and families. We wanted to learn more, so we caught up with Dr. Dustin Kidd. He is an associate professor and chair of the sociology department at Temple University. So to start, and you know, we're going to paint in broad strokes here to start. How big is this problem of online radicalization? Because it seems like more and more it pops up behind somebody who's done something awful. The reality is it's very difficult to measure or know how big it is when a specific crime occurs or a specific violent scenario occurs and we find out that that person was radicalized online. We don't know how many other folks are operating in the same spaces online as them. We don't know how many folks are in those spaces and not being radicalized. There's just a lot of information that we don't know because it happens in these anonymous uh, online spaces. And so it's very difficult to measure. And it's also tricky to measure radicalization over time in the sense that folks who committed violent crimes in the past who might have been radicalized in some way we're simply radicalized in other spaces or, or by other means. And so it's not as if the internet automatically means radicalization or that the internet is some novel source of radicalization. That's uh, Radicalization is, is, is not new by any means. The internet is a technology that allows it to happen just as it's a technology that allows for a lot of other things to happen. So it's, it's, it's uh, unfortunately very difficult to measure because it's a great question, but we can't quite answer it. When I first became introduced to this concept, you almost always heard it connected to groups like Al-Qaeda, you know, but going back to the days after 9-11, all the focus was online radicalization with regards to uh, that small percentage of terrorists who follow Islam. But now this is something that is pretty much out in the open all across this country. Has it always kind of been... Is it a relatively new phenomenon in the U.S., or has it always been here? We just started to focus on it the last four, five, six years. Well, I, I tend to say that there, there's very little that is new except for technology in any given moment. That's not to say that there's nothing that's new, but just um, I tend not to think that things change as quickly as, as people often perceive. So like I said, radicalization, uh, you can find going back throughout human history, People have always found ways to meet in secret, to scheme about ways to overthrow the government, to launch a coup and so forth, whether they're meeting in the basements of bars or on online message boards. But the current technology of the internet does allow for radicalization and organization across pretty vast geographic spaces. And so that's a a major contribution, if you will, of that technology, particularly for folks who would otherwise be quite isolated geographically, whether that's across a particular, a particularly wide region or in very rural spaces, things like that. So it does bring more people into both democratic conversations and anti-democratic conversations. How does it, and I asked this question knowing there is not one simple answer. You don't go to a website with a, and I'm not trying to make light of this, with a checkbox that says, would you like to be radicalized? And you click yes. Like, how does it 
are there kind of gateways? You know, uh, there are people that I'm sure go looking for nefarious things, but I am sure there is also probably maybe a larger constituency that just kind of are looking at things and it starts on Facebook with something their cousin posts and they click on that. And then three weeks later, it's very difficult to have a conversation with them because they're talking about a whole different world. Like, is there a a most likely path that one travels that ends up in these spaces? A surprising gateway I find is YouTube. So you can make a YouTube video supporting a particular point of view, putting together what looks like a lot of evidence, but with very little fact checking of that evidence or with a a very definitive bias to that evidence, splice it together with quotes that may or may not be misleading, with music that may add a certain level of appeal, and then post it to a YouTube account that seems to be a legitimate account by somebody who posts videos on a regular basis, who has a lot of videos on their account, but typically without a uh, an individual human's name, or if it is a human's name, it's, it's a misleading name, uh, often without a photograph, or if there's, there seems to be a, a face, it's a, a digitally developed face. Um, and then once that's there on YouTube, it becomes very easy to share to these other platforms like Facebook and Twitter. So then Facebook and Twitter become the places where it gets to an even wider audience. And then once folks watch those videos, that might point them towards information even deeper into some of the more anonymous spaces online, like the message boards, whether it's Reddit, uh, or more likely some of the chans uh, that are still around. Those have kind of come and gone over the years, but at key points, 4chan and 8chan were two of the major uh, online sources of that misinformation. But the way that you got there, there weren't people who were likely to just go looking for 4chan until the last few years. But prior to that, it was just like this obscure thing that nerds looked at. People sort of found out about it through uh, YouTube videos and other posts on what might be seen as more legitimate social media. You mentioned 4chan and 8chan, and these are sites that I think the vast majority of listeners probably have maybe heard vaguely in passing but aren't familiar with. But these really have been kind of front and center, I know, for a lot of the the problems. Kind of, Can you give us a quick primer what these sites are and if there is something that they can be compared to in the non-radicalization world? The best thing that I can compare them to, and they actually invite the metaphor themselves, is like a message board at a coffee shop or a cork board in a hallway somewhere where somebody might just post a flyer and then that flyer says you can you know, follow this to get more information. On the chans, they, they refer to them as message boards and you start to follow particular message boards and you get into these very deep threads of conversations where someone will post a comment and then there'll be a response and then a response and then a response. And you can dig very deeply into that thread. You can also lose the thread. So like, in other words, it can be very hard to find an original comment that started a conversation. And that makes it very difficult to really track information in these message boards, unless you're uh, both in there every day and following a lot of the boards. So if you open one of them, you'll see that there are a lot of boards that you can take a look at. No one has enough time to follow all of them. And yet really important 
radicalization types of comments can be made in any of those spaces. And when we say radicalization, once again, it's kind of a broad overarching. But I think one thing we've learned is you can be radicalized when it comes to election denying. You can be radicalized when it comes to QAnon. It seems to me, I've read some stuff lately that people are just radicalized in just chaos in society, like that just nothing matters, destroy it all, let it burn. Is that the case that you can pick which direction you want to be radicalized in whatever interests you, whatever you think is, you know, but it all kind of ends up in the same general space? Yeah. So uh, you can really focus on the political boards if that's what you want to focus on. And that's where you're going to see the most potential radicalization politically. I think historically, there's been a lot of attention to the boards about video games and the ways in which the boards about video games became a kind of test run for. This is Gamergate, right? This is game. I'm referring to Gamergate, which started in 2014, and the ways in which message boards were central to the evolution of Gamergate. Although there were other platforms that were important as well. And can you give us a quick primer on that? Because I think that does seem like kind of the starting point for a lot of what we see these days in all different uh, in different spaces. Just give us a quick primer what Gamergate was. So Gamergate is a controversy in the video game world that became public in 2014. And it centered on male gamers who felt that their hobby, their entertainment choice was being invaded upon by women gamers, women game developers, and feminist game critics, who many of whom were themselves game players as well, but who who, uh, wanted to critique some of the depictions of, of women and of gender more generally in video games. But the way that it, it came forward was around a particular game developer named Zoe Quinn, who had a number of threats and horrible messages posted about her in different platforms on social media, beginning with a series of blog posts by an ex-boyfriend that led to a lot of male gamers then using YouTube, a message board called Wizard Chan, Twitter, a number of social media platforms to both critique her and these other women, and then eventually to threaten their lives to the extent that three women had to go into hiding at various points. Uh, and there was an investigation by the FBI. And it was both very anonymous in the sense of a lot of male gamers participating in these anonymous spaces and putting forward their opinions and critiques and threats in these anonymous spaces. But it also had a public component to the extent that Breitbart and some other conservative news platforms were in support of these uh, anti-feminist gamers. Steve Bannon was a supporter of it. And an actor named Adam Baldwin, no relation to the famous Baldwin brothers, is the person who is known as the first, first one to tweet the hashtag Gamergate and really launched it and made it a a public facing scandal. To some folks, it was seen as a kind of test run by some folks who wanted to experiment with what they could do online and in social media to kind of steer people towards acting in a particular kind of way. And some folks described it as a kind of test run for the 2016 election and a test run for other later demonstrations of radicalization. How much of the radicalization is driven, it seems like 
almost all of it is driven by fear in one sense of another. Fear of women getting more power than men or women doing things that had traditionally been done by men. Fear of immigrants, fear of Democrats. Like we can probably parse through all this, but would that kind of be the common thread at the at the core fear? I would say fear and also distrust, which are are very similar, but not quite the same. So fear in the sense of fear of losing a relative sense of power and privilege, but also a distrust in institutions. So there's been a heavy sense of distrust of social media. So can you trust social media in and of itself? An increasing, I think, increasing distrust of traditional media garnered in part by politicians, I would say on both sides, who often have combative relationships with traditional media, distrust of political institutions. So a sense that Congress isn't getting anything done and that the presidency is ineffective, distrust of corporations in many ways, distrust of the systems that create even greater forms of economic inequality. So increasing economic inequality as each with each passing year. So I, I just think that fear and distrust kind of combined lead to this and they lead to a sense of, well, if I can't trust what the news is telling me, then let me go find the real information in these message boards and other online spaces. Do we as a society appreciate how dangerous and widespread this is? I feel like we're just kind of starting to become conscious of how all-encompassing this is. And when I say just starting, I mean the last couple of couple of years. Like This is really kind of all over the place, isn't it? The language that I'm hearing more and more is, is this the end of democracy? Is this the end of the American project? Uh, that's the kind of, of language that people are starting to use. I think that for some people, that hints at an ignorance of the inequalities that were already built into the American project from the beginning. But I think that there is a real question around, you know, what does the future of democracy look like? Americans, particularly those who experience some level of of privilege in America, have a sense of American exceptionalism, that this is a particularly great place to be in the world, uh, where you have a particularly strong voice in the democratic system. And to the extent that that might be true, which I think is worth questioning, um, that might be something that is falling apart at this moment. We need to take a break. We will have more with Dr. Dustin Kidd right after this. This is KYW News Radio in depth. And we are back continuing our conversation on online radicalization with Temple University's Dr. Dustin Kidd. I have read that it is when someone really kind of goes down these rabbit holes that it is difficult to bring them back, even with the most pure of intentions, you know, uh, is that true? Uh, and if it is, how should you approach if, you know, just for this discussion purposes, if like, you know, a, a loved one has, you know, really gone all in on something has not even necessarily misinformation, but just this radicalization, where do you start to try to pull them back? That's a great question. I mean, we saw a, a really interesting case with one of the rioters from January 6 being sentenced to, I think, a seven-year prison term, and his son had spoken against him in the course of that. And and that's a, it, not everyone is going to be 
uh, not every example is going to be a case where they were at January 6th. I think you're talking about a conversation around the dinner table and just somebody having an opinion that you want to push back on. I think it's tricky because you want to, you don't want to create walls that just say, well, everybody's either going to believe one thing over on this side and another thing over on this side, especially if that's uh, within a family or within a community. The best way to undermine that radicalization is with conversations. And yet it can often start to feel within those conversations like you're legitimizing some of the ideas that you're also trying to undermine because you're taking them seriously. And there's an impulse to not take those ideas seriously. So you kind of have to navigate that very carefully and just invite the person to explain what they believe, why they believe it, where they got their, their information from. But keep an eye out for logical inconsistencies or sort of jump and dodge games where where someone will use a piece of evidence, accept that that evidence doesn't work, but then grab another piece of evidence very quickly. And it that that moment highlights the fact that they're committed to the outcome, the the belief as opposed to the evidence. So they're not starting with evidence. they're they're adding evidence to get to their belief. So pointing that out, also being open to the ways in which we ourselves do that as well. So that's not isolated to a particular political side. And so being open to moments when you have to apologize and say, uh, you know, I was maybe a little too assertive. Let me let me dial that back and let's have a conversation. How much responsibility do social media platforms and all do you think bear for this? Because I think that's another thing is we're very quick to demonize these these companies and all. And there are serious problems. I don't mean to be an apologist, but it's not all them and isn't i don't you can only police this to a certain point in a free society am i being naive there well it's tricky because in comparison to traditional media the big issue with social media is the sense of free speech but what's missing between traditional media and social media is the regulation that occurs through the federal communications commission that regulation varies depending upon the type of platform that it is and so forth. But, you know, with broadcast television, for instance, there's a, a fair amount of regulation. The extent to which the FCC regulates social media is certainly much less. And, uh, and yet social media is moving through the airwaves that are all around us, right? Th- this air is a, is a public good. Nobody owns it. And that's why the FCC has a right to step in and say, as a public good, we are leasing you some of that space and letting you use that, and you owe the public back something in response. And that's how TV channels have always and radio channels were always held accountable to some degree by saying you don't have the right to use the airwaves around us for that purpose uh, without delivering something back to the public. And so I think we have to start to think about social media as a set of corporations. Uh, that are using a public good and that have to have some level of accountability, even as we also wrestle with the degree to which individuals using social media are going to assert their free speech rights within those platforms as well. And I don't think there's an easy way to account for that, except to say that what you publish on social media isn't necessarily, like you don't necessarily have the right to publish anything in social media. That's not, not necessarily your First Amendment rights. In the sense that if a corporation 
limits the kinds of things you can say in social media. That's not the same as the government coming down and saying, we're going to arrest you for saying those things. You know, we go every couple of days, we have some kind of a horrific shooting or event like that in this country. And more and more, it seems to me that like in the hours after the person is arrested or found dead and they find basically their plans on social media, like this was not something they didn't, they, they almost bragged about this. Is this something authorities, and once again, it's that, you know, but a lot of these folks aren't hiding what they want to do. And I know if you went and chased every threat, you'd spend eternity, you know, going down rabbit holes. But do we need to do a better job of monitoring from that standpoint and taking seriously when somebody reaches out and says, hey, I follow this person and they said this and you know, I think this is going to happen. Is is there a lot of work to be done in that space? I mean, I, I imagine there's a lot of work to be done from a legal perspective. I, I'm not in that field, but I think if you could triangulate the individuals with the violent manifestos and the uh, assault rifles, that would go pretty far. I can imagine lots of folks with violent manifestos who don't have access to weapons that could kill a lot of people very quickly. Uh, I can imagine lots of people with assault rifles who might not have violent manifestos. Uh, It's the overlap that seems like it's worth investigating more. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.